Well, turn in your Bibles or scroll in your Bible app to the Gospel of John. Uh, the Gospel of John and chapter 4. John chapter 4, we're going to be looking at uh, a large portion of the text today as we go through John chapter 4 verses 1 all the way through 42. John chapter 4 beginning in verse 1, uh, if you are physically able, would you please stand in honor of the reading of God's holy word? Have you done that at all over the summer? No? Yeah, well, you've had an irreverent summer. John chapter 4 beginning in verse 1. This is what the Word of God says. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria, so he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. And Jacob's well was there. And so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. And the Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. And Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God, and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, well, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. So what you have said is true. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem Will you worship the Father? You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I, I know that Messiah is coming. He was called Christ. And when he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you, am he. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into the town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? And Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that sower and reaper rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. And many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. And so when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, 
Uh, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. This was actually uh, a sermon that I had prepared and was excited to preach in January when uh, I contracted the Rona. And so I'm excited. I've been excited to preach this for eight months. Like I've been looking forward to having the opportunity to preach this sermon to you from a passage of Scripture that most Christians are fairly familiar with. John chapter 4, the account of Jesus and the Samaritan woman at the well. So, But still, since we've not been in the Gospel of John, let me take just a a few minutes and give you a little, just a little bit of background and hopefully set the stage as to what we're looking at here and what Jesus is going about. At this time in Jesus' earthly life and ministry, it was actually a great time. His popularity was really growing. Now, if you look back at chapter 4 and verse 1, it says the Pharisees heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John. Uh, and then in verse 2, there's this parenthetical phrase that says, although Jesus himself did not baptize but only his disciples. I would love to tell you why that parenthetical phrase is there, but I do not know. Like if you take that out of the account, the account flows just fine. Like we could go from verse one to verse three, it's not integral to the account, it's not integral to the text, but yet there it is anyway. For some reason, it's important that the, gospel, that the writer of the Gospel of John, namely John himself, penned that we would know that it was not Jesus himself baptizing, but it was actually his disciples. That's really all I have to say about that first, because I genuinely don't know exactly why it's there. But suffice it to say, it was not Jesus who was baptizing. I think it must frustrate people who believe that baptism is essential for salvation, right? Jesus who came to say, conceive the to 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 seek and save the lost. Please don't laugh at me. To seek and save the lost, and here he is not baptizing people. If you believe that baptism is 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 integral, is essential, is necessary for salvation, that must be a very frustrating little parenthetical phrase that they probably wish wasn't there. But if that just seems like an aside to poke at people who believe that baptism saves, it seems that way uh, because it is. Getting back into the text, uh, verse 3 says that Jesus left Judea and headed to Galilee. And he was doing that because the Jewish authorities viewed Jesus, just as they did John the Baptist, with, with, with suspicion. And not a helpful, warranted suspicion, but a sinful suspicion. And since it wasn't time for Jesus to engage with them just yet, he left Judea and headed to Galilee. Now, take a look at verse 4. Uh, John 4 and verse 4 says, And he had to pass through Samaria. He had to pass through Samaria. Now, that's also an interesting phrase because he didn't really have to pass through Samaria. Uh, number one, Jesus didn't have to do anything. Like, he could, he could do whatever he wants. But the fact of the matter is, between where Jesus was leaving and where he was headed, as he was on his way to Galilee, the most direct route was through Samaria. Now, there are other ways to go. There are other ways he could have gone a coastal route. He could have gone another route. There are other ways to go that would have taken more time. But, in fact, this is the thing. Many Jews in that day would have taken that longer Root, just to make sure that they didn't have to interact with Samaritans. That's literally how much hatred and how much disdain existed between these two groups. I, I don't know if we have anything in our modern day and age that we can actually compare it to. It's like, you know, I don't know that I'm taking 275 instead of 75. It's probably not the same sentiment, right, like, like they had. It's not like, I, I hate Norwood. Like, no one says that. Like, I'm not driving through there. Like, th- nobody does that. So, but back then... People were traveling on foot. They're traveling slowly. They didn't want to interact with people at all. This was not just a, a, a different way. I think we'll take the scenic route. It cost more time. It cost more energy, more walking, more, more walking for animals, probably in some way, shape, or form more money. But the Jews were like, yeah, but well worth every penny. All right, well worth every minute because we don't want to interact with Samaritans. We don't care how much faster it is to go through Samaria. Well, Jesus decides to take the most direct route. He decides to go through Samaria. Let's pick it up in verse uh, 6. It says, and uh, Jacob's well was there when he came to that town. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. And Jews started their day at 6 a.m. So the sixth hour would be 6 plus 6, which means it is 12. Very good. Very good. 
12 noon. Not bad for Sunday morning. So it's, it's high noon, and Jesus is weary from his journey. He decides to sit down next to the well. Pick it up in verse 7. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Now, Jesus is there, we're told in verse 6, because he was what? Tired, right? It's a rest stop. Like, this is, I'm weary from my journey. He sits there. His disciples go into town to draw food, to, to, to get food. And he then says to this woman, give me a drink. But you have to understand, if you're not traveling through the city, to go to a well at high noon in a desert climate is not something that most people tended to do. Most people tend, you got to remember, they have these huge, like, clay water pots where they would fill up water and take the water that they needed for the day and then put it on their shoulder or even on their heads and walk it back to where they lived. This was not something you wanted to do with the sun at high noon. This is something people traditionally did early in the morning and later in the evening just because it was cooler. And so for Jesus to be there makes sense. It's a rest area. For the woman who lives in the town to be there at this time, it does not make sense. Unless she wanted to be alone. Unless she had some sort of a past or some sort of a present that caused her to not want to interact with small town Samaria. And so here's Jesus sitting at the well because he's tired. But the woman, the woman is coming to the well, yes, to draw water, but for her to come at this time of day really makes no sense unless you read on and learn more about her. And so pick it up in verse 7. A woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, give me a drink. Verse 8, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. So he couldn't, he couldn't ask them. Maybe they had a bucket or a ladle or something. I don't know. But he couldn't ask them. So he's like, hey, can, can you give me a drink? Uh, she responds, verse 9, how is it that you, a Jew, immediately defensive? Jesus said, give me a drink. Like, can I have a drink? Can you spare some water? Wasn't really, per it was just, I'm tired, I'm also thirsty. But she responds immediately, how is it that you, uh, look at verse 9, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? Another parenthetical phrase, for Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. It's actually a fair question. A little odd that she would respond that viscerally, that, that, that defensively when Jesus just said, give me a drink. But she's on edge. She's used to coming to this well, no doubt, at this time of day, usually not having to interact with anyone. She probably approaches the well, sees somebody sitting there and goes, oh, how's this going to go? All right, I'm just going to go about my own business. I'm here to get water. And then all of a sudden, he engages her in conversation. And she's like, well, shoot. Then she realizes he's a Jew. And she's like, okay, I know. I'll come out swinging first. Who are you? Why would you speak to me? I'm a, do you not know I'm a Samaritan? You're in Samaria. How is it that you, a Jew, would speak to me and ask me for water? Verse 10. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. And she's like, so let me get this straight. Not only am I not coming to this well alone like I'd like to be, but now this person is asking me for a drink and telling me that if I knew who he was, I would ask him for a drink. Just makes no sense. She's, not think she's thinking very personally her, her emotional dukes are up. She's ready for a fight. She's ready to defend herself in her mind. She's ready to defend her, her, herself. She thinks she's about to be maligned, and she's trying to come at him with, like, playing the race card a bit. You're, you're a Jew. I'm a Samaritan. We shouldn't even talk. And Jesus is like, if you knew who I was, you would be so glad I'm asking you for water, and then you would ask me for water. And she's like, I'm, I'm out. I'm lost. I don't know what this means. You don't have a, like, like and, and then she, she goes on. She, she says in verse 11, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with. The well is deep. Like, she's just, like, this is common sense. I would ask you for water? Well, I would probably come up with nothing. Because you, have, you don't have a bucket. You don't have a rope. You have nothing. You're useless. You, can't, you have nothing to draw water with. The well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Verse 12. Are you greater than our father Jacob? Again, going back to her heritage. Focusing on who she's, her, her line. Not focusing on her present. Not even focusing on her past. But focusing on her bloodline. Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Verse 13, Jesus said to her, 
Yeah, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the woman's like, you have no water, bro. Like, you have no, this is making no sense to her. And if you notice, and we'll get to it a little bit more later, she's right here. Right here in the present. Horizontally thinking about, and she's not, I mean, she's not being foolish. She's just saying, you have nothing to draw water with. I thought you asked me for water. But you have better water than I have? Like, what, what is going, she's right here. Jesus is right here. He's talking about her heart. He's talking about her soul. He's talking ultimately about her need for salvation, her need for him. But they're missing each other. So, verse 14 again, Jesus is saying, But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So, verse 15, the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty, or that's kind of key, or have to come here to draw water. Right? Great, hook me up. You got great water? I'd love it. And quite frankly, this is the worst part of my day. I'd love to not have to come here again. Curveball, verse 16. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband. For you've had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband, so what you have said is true. A little edgy. Verse 19, the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Verse 20, right back to the heritage. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Do you see that subject change? Immediate deflection. Like, okay, you know, you just told me everything I did and what I'm doing now. I perceive that you're a prophet. No, come back. Our our fathers, but you think Jerusalem's awesome. That's crazy. Right? Please leave me alone. Please let me go. Verse 21, Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews, but the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. He's like, I don't care about mountains or cities or people or bloodlines or places. That's not, not even a thing in the realms of eternity. The hour is coming and is now here where God is seeking people truly to worship him, regardless of what mountain or plain they live on or what their heritage is. Verse 24, God is spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Verse 25, the woman has had it. She would like to leave. This is the ultimate, like, you know, one of these, like, thank you. Thanks. I don't even forget water. I'll go thirsty. I'm out. I'm out. Verse 25, she says this. I know that Messiah is coming. He was called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. I'm done. Thank you. Thanks. Okay. I know the Messiah. Great. Love it. You're preaching. I'm going to leave now. I know that when Messiah comes, he'll tell us all things. Translation. Don't want to hear anything else from you. I'll wait on him. Verse 26, Jesus said to her, and if I could add a little bit of conjecture, I think he looked her in the eye and said, I who speak to you am he. I'm that guy. I'm the person you're waiting. I know that when Messiah comes, he'll tell us all things. I'm that person. I'm here. I'm the Messiah. Point number one. You need to know sometimes God's works are flashy. Most times they are not. 
but he's working nonetheless in your everyday life. Some people hear this account, they read through it, and they're like, God really stepped, when did he really step in? Like, it's just a conversation up until the time when Jesus is like, go call your husband, right? That's when Jesus really pulls out the, the big guns, right? That's when Jesus really shows his, his deity. That's when Jesus really does something that nobody else could have done. And that is true. That is when Jesus does something that you or I could not do. We don't have that power. We are not God. Jesus is God. And so he does play the God card and does so without apology. But if you think that's when God intervened, if you think that was the God thing, that was the God moment, and nothing else was, you're missing it. Because you need to realize that, that sometimes God's works are flashy. Sometimes they're miraculous. Sometimes they're amazing. Most times they're actually not. Most times they're normal, everyday things that God is working in. And so I get a little, not, and it's, again, I'm not, I'm not against it. I've said it. You've said it. We know what people mean. When something, when something happens that was an amazing, what seems like a coincidence, we said it was, su- finish the sentence, it was such a, such a God thing or it was such a God moment. And it, it's, not, it's not untrue. It was. My only concern with that is that we assume that the, there were other moments that weren't God moments. Boom, that moment was a God moment. Everything else was just, I don't know, we were just kind of floating along. And then, bam, God, God all of a sudden intervened. Like I was kind of controlling it or other people or circumstances were controlling and then boom, Jesus took the wheel. Right then and there. And that's my only concern is that we think that there's a time when Jesus stepped in and started taking control and orchestrating things but before then, he wasn't in control. When in reality, God is orchestrating things in your life and in my life, everyday, seemingly mundane things. That doesn't mean that we're robots, not at all. Not at all. You chose to sit where you're sitting of your own free will. You chose to park where you parked of your own free will. You chose to wear what you are wearing right now of your own free will. Like, like those are real choices that you are making each and every day. You will choose what to have lunch and what to have for dinner of your own free will. But God is still working in all of those details. God still has made you to want certain things and not want certain things, to like certain things and to not like certain things, and all of it is God-ordained. And God's works are sometimes flashy, but most times they're, they're not. They're just run-of-the-mill things. And so take a look. It's in your outline, or you can look right in the Scriptures Jesus wanted to flee the Pharisees and headed for Galilee. That's a very normal thing. He did not want to be around people who made him uncomfortable. They were not happy with him. And so he decided to head for Galilee. This is in verses 1 through 3. That was a God thing. Uh, to do that, he had to pass through Samaria, verse 4. In your outline, I think it says verse 6. That's a mistake. He had to pass through Samaria. That's miraculous. Not really. It was just, if you look at where he was and where he had to go, he had to... Pass through Samaria. It's just a normal, we're just telling a story. We're just telling it like it is. He reached Samaria at the sixth hour and needed a drink. And so he stopped by the nearest well. Now, I'm not saying Jesus didn't see this coming because I don't think Jesus has ever been surprised. Right? Like, has it ever occurred to you that nothing's ever occurred to God? I get it. He's not surprised. But I don't think he started his journey. He's like, guys, listen, we got to leave at this time because i got to get to the well at this time because there's going to be a lady there that i got to talk to who's had a lot of husbands and she's living with a dude and I've got to tell her about me. So I've estimated the journey and we've got to leave at this time so that I can hit that well at that time. I think if you ask his disciples, they're just like, yeah, we left when we left. Uh, We got tired when we got tired. We hit this town and there was a well. Wells have water. He's thirsty. We're hungry. We went into town. He was going to wait here. It was, just, it was just life. Certainly, Jesus was behind it, but it wasn't like this, I know it will do. Muhahaha. It was just going along the way, going along the road. And God's just as involved with that as, in, as he is with every other thing. Jesus has nothing to draw water with, verse 11. His disciples might have, but fat lot of good that would have done because they're in the town. So he has to ask the woman for a drink in verse 7. And again, the woman at the well is thinking and speaking along earthly lines horizontally. If you look at all of her statements in John 4, verse 9, verse 11, 12, 15, 17, 19, 25, it's all like, yeah, right here, right in the here and now, right about the water, right about just this interaction right here and now. But Jesus is using these circumstances, here's the key, to pivot, to pivot this conversation towards spiritual things, toward vertical things, which you see in his responses as they converse with one another. 
Then his disciples come back just as Jesus tells the woman that he is the Messiah. With, with, with perfect, providential, pinpoint accuracy, they come back. If they came back sooner, they might have just been like, hey, we got to go, man. We got we to gotta hit the road. We want to be off the road by sundown, whatever. There might have been reasons like, we got we to gotta go. Here, I got food. Here, Chex Mix, let's go. We, but we got to get back on the road. Why did, he, why did they show up when they show, showed up? Because that's when they finished buying food. They were like waiting in the distance like, he looks like he's still talking. This could be going well. Let's pray. They didn't do that. Just when they showed up, they had the food and they had to go. Boom. When does he, they show up right as he says, I who speak to you am he. And there his disciples are. And since he was done speaking, they didn't marvel. Like, what are you speaking to? They probably they thought it. That's what the text says. They thought, why is he speaking to the woman? But they didn't ask because, like, well, he's done. I don't know what he was doing. But probably asked her for what? A drink. Why is he speaking? It's probably about water. Let's go. What about you? Have you ever considered your ordinary, everyday life as God-ordained? Just, just your everyday, I'm not talking about a baptism service, I'm not talking about a miracle. I'm just talking about who you stand across at the gas, who you stand across from at the gas pump. You didn't choose that, they didn't choose that. But it doesn't come as a surprise to God. Your everyday life as God ordained, where you live is God ordained. Who your neighbors are are God ordained. They didn't they likely didn't move there for you. You likely didn't move there for them. You might have hope they move out. But where, who your neighbors are are God-ordained. Where you go to school is God-ordained. Who you sit near, also God-ordained. Where you work, what you do, God-ordained. Who you see at the playground with your kids, the cashier who checked you out, the airline passenger next to you, every single one of these interactions is God-ordained. And you know what? They're all temporary. Uh, this moment at the well, temporary, lasts but for a, f- a few minutes, likely way shorter than the time it took me to read this account to you. This was minutes, and yet it was redeemed by God. And all of these moments, all of these God-ordained aspects of our lives, some of them are, uh, they're, they're all temporary. Some of them are seasons, right, years and years, and then maybe you move, or you switch jobs, or maybe you pass away. But there's lots of different reasons why these seasons could change. Some of these are just moments, brief, maybe just minutes, quick conversations you have with a certain coworker every week at a standing meeting, brief interactions with people who watch your kids, quick chats about the class you just left, just whatever. They're just these little brief moments. But please understand, if I could just say it one more time, every one of these moments are God-ordained. Jesus took an opportunity to ask for water and use it for the good of the woman at the well and for his glory. And friends, for the most part, you and I can do just, do just about everything he did. Save for the, I know what you did last summer moment. Like, we can't do that. Probably ought not do that, if you do know. Now, here's the thing. There are things that can stand in the way of us being fruitful in these areas of our lives. One of them is our general disposition toward people who think very different from the way you think or act very different from the way you act or have made very different life choices and a variety of different decisions in their lives up until now. Imagine how different this account would have been if Jesus judged her for her sordid past, her sordid present. What would it have been like in the account if if Jesus started out with what he said in verse 18, right? What if he started out just by establishing himself as as God? I know that you're living with somebody who, they've never met this woman. I know you're living with somebody who's not your husband. And I know you've had five husbands. He would not have been wrong. But I think the account would have gone very differently. Differently. And that's not what Jesus does. Instead, what Jesus does is engages her 
in a compassionate conversation about everyday life. Give me a drink of water. Hook me up. Can I have a drink of water? And uses that as an opportunity to go deeper and to ultimately at some point pivot the conversation towards God. What do we learn from Jesus in this passage? Well, point number two, you need to be like Jesus by being gentle and kind, compassionate and patient and conversational with sinners. Uh, Jesus could have been gentle and kind and compassionate from a distance, right? He could have smiled at them. That's, that's all good and well. He could have been patient with people who are, you know, in his way or, or just otherwise just disrupting his life. But he engages them with conversation. See, here's the thing. The enemy would love nothing more than uh, nothing more than just to frustrate you with these people. He would love nothing more than for you to lump some people together into some group, some tribe, some stereotype, some whatever, so that you think, I ought not speak with them. I ought not engage them. We are so different. It would not go well. Therefore, I'm not going to even try. Uh, this is going to fail. This is not, I'm not going to even try. It's like if Jesus was like, yeah, but this is a Samaritan. I'll save her from afar, or, or, or I'll leave it to God to do something. Like, you know, it's just not, it's not even a hatred thing. It's just, I, I'll tick her off. She'll tick me off. I don't want to ruin her day. I'm God. I know why she's here. She's forgotten a hard enough life, and I'm just going to step back. The enemy would love nothing more than for you to see people in categories, subcategories, give them titles, give them so that you can rationalize in your mind as to why it, surely you shouldn't, you shouldn't talk to this person. People like that contribute to the societal ills that drive me crazy. It's people like that who are making, like these are things you think, people like that who, these are the people who are making it a miserable world. It's the reason our country is the way it is right now. It's the reason society has so many societal ills. It's people like that who are making, you know, a miserable world not only for me but for others. Not only for others but for my friends and my family and my children and my grandchildren. It's people like that who are contributing to the things that irk me the most. And so if you start seeing sinners as just their resume... And just like what you're, they're probably up to, what they've probably done, you'll never engage them with conversation. And Satan's like, great, I love it. This is super great. Love that you would not, great. See them for what they are and then just shy away and not talk to them because that's one less person to talk to them about Jesus. The enemy loves subcategories of people that distract us from the main thing. Because if we think of people apart from two categories, lost and found, lost and found, the saved and the unsaved, the saints and the ain'ts. If we get out of those categories and start going to these other subcategories, we'll start talking ourselves into reasons why we shouldn't engage them. God will send somebody else. Someone who's more like them. Someone who's more palatable. Someone who'll be less offensive. We'll likely be more hesitant to do what Jesus is doing right here in this passage. Have a conversation during which he pivots to something greater than the topic of water. We need to be like Jesus, gentle, kind, compassionate, patient, and conversational with sinners. I want you to see something by just turning back to John chapter 3, just one, one chapter earlier. It's interesting where this is placed within the gospel of John. John chapter 3 uh, likely the most famous well-known verse of John chapter 3 is what? Verse number 16, right? Football. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. But you have to understand that that is kind of towards the end of a conversation. It's not a standalone verse. Prior to that, Jesus is talking to a Jewish leader named Nicodemus. No, not prior to that. Actually, right then, he's talking to a, a Jewish leader named Nicodemus. Jesus essentially, it's not about water. Jesus essentially has the same bottom line for Nicodemus as he does for the woman at the well. But a very different conversation. Very different tone. Jesus is always strongest and boldest about religious things to religious people, especially Religious leaders. Look at verse 3. 
Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. It's a very straightforward statement. In fact, if you look at verse 2, Nicodemus, this man came to Jesus by night, okay, under the cover of night, under the cover of darkness, almost the same way that if you think there's also a a, a same, not deceptive way, but the woman was seeking to go to the well under the cover of light, under the cover of high noon. Nobody would see. Nicodemus goes under the cover of darkness and says, Rabbi, verse 2, we know that you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus, completely unimpressed, just comes back to him and is like, yeah, listen, you cannot, you will not see the kingdom of God unless you are born again. Boom. So remember before I said, what if Jesus started with a hard statement with the woman at the well? Jesus does start with a hard statement for Nicodemus. Why? Because he expects him to be up to it. Why? Because he's religious. Not only religious, he's a religious leader. And then Nicodemus in verse 4 says, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Certainly the most awkward question Nicodemus has ever uttered. Verse 7, look at what Jesus says. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. Again, very, not mean, but just boom, just right, hitting him with truth. Don't marvel that I said you must be born again. Verse 10, Jesus says, are you the teacher of Israel and you do not understand these things? How are you leading people? You see what I'm saying? Jesus is always strongest and boldest about religious things to religious people. We tend to be, at least Christians nowadays, tend to want to be strongest and boldest to sinful people about sinful things. But in reality, that's not how Jesus rolls. That's not what he does at all. In fact, Jesus is always kinder, gentler, and more patient with sinners. John 4, go back to John 4. John 4, verse 7, Jesus said to her, give me a drink. John 4, and verse 10, Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God, who it is that's saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you water. He's drawing her out. He's, he's piquing her curiosity. He's having a conversation. He's in no rush. He's, he's standing there waiting for water. He's just talking. He's not hitting her between the eyes. He's loving her. He's patient with her. John 4, verse 14, whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. John 4, 26, instead of saying, I am the Messiah, I who speak to you am he. What about you? When you speak to unbelievers or about unbelievers, how would you describe, generally speaking, your tone, your disposition? More times than not, are you compassionately concerned? I'm not saying you have to, I don't want you to compromise. I don't, I'm not saying you have to agree with them. Not at all. But I'm talking about tone and disposition. Are you compassionately concerned or are you frustrated and angry? I'm both. I'm sometimes concerned, sometimes I'm ticked. I'm sometimes compassionate, I'm sometimes just upset. But the times when I'm compassionate, I am more like Jesus. The times when I'm not compassionate, I'm not necessarily wrong. On paper, I'm right. They are wrong. What they're doing is wrong. What they said is wrong. It will contribute to societal ills. It does have a negative impact on me and society. I'm not wrong. It's not a matter of right and wrong. But I'm not compassionate. I'm not like Jesus. See, if we imitate Christ, if we're kind and compassionate and willing to have conversations with people who are not like us at all, God will use it to do things we never could have done on our own, which brings us to point number three. You need to see how God uses simple conversation and invitation to bring bring about a radical, radical transformation. Jesus engages her in simple conversation. Again, we're back in John 4 about an, an, an everyday, ordinary, run-of-the-mill thing. Thirst. Legit thirst. He had been wearied from his journey, so he sat down by a well, and he's thirsty. He just engages her in an everyday, run-of-the-mill thing. John 4 and verse 7, give me a drink. But it ultimately results, 19 verses later, in radical transformation in the woman's life. 
Look at John 4 and verse 26. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Look at verse 28. And so the woman left her water jar. Can you please look at this? She left her water jar. She had one job. Go to the well, get water, go home. She left her water jar. Okay, so that's off of her mind. And then do you see what she does? She goes away into the town and confronts the very people she would do anything to avoid minutes earlier. She's a completely different person. And not only that, when she gets into the town, verse 29, she says, come see a man. Remember, she doesn't want to talk about her past. She doesn't want to talk about her present. Verse 29, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. It's crazy. They're probably like, we all, everyone knows what you, it's you. Look, we all know what you did. Who doesn't know what you did? Can this be the Christ? She literally laid her own reputation, her own feelings, her own identity right on the line just to get people to go and see if this was the Christ. Come and see. Come and see. She offers a simple invitation. Zero miracle there. Like she did nothing miraculous. Nothing you or I can't do. She said, come and see. This guy's great. Come and see. This person told me all that I've ever done. She engages in a conversation, a conversation with people she has nothing in common with, a conversation with the very people she was avoiding moments ago by coming to the well at a time of day when they wouldn't be there. So she goes to them. She's not even like, next time I'm going to come to the well in the morning. Reasonable. Wow, my life's been changed. Fill up the jar, go home, happier, right? Hopefully ditch dude, eventually, at some point. Then go back to the well. Guys, you won't believe what happened to me earlier today. Would have been reasonable. She can't help herself. Leave. You notice nobody gets water, by the way. I don't know if you know. That frustrates the heck out of me. Like nobody. She doesn't get water. He doesn't get water. Everybody's thirsty. But anyway, she leaves the water jar. She goes into the. She's got to tell people now. Now. She has to have a conversation with them and give them an invitation. Look at John 4, verse, verse 39. Look what results from that. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. Here's, here's the big line. Here's the big line. It's super spiritual. This is the big moment. This is the line she used. This is the key. This is the hook. He told me all that I ever did. That's it. That's it. All she did was like, this is what he did. You should probably go see him. Verse 40, when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. Verse 42, they said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe. Like that got us there. That intrigued us. But we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. A simple conversation about water radically transforms a woman's life and leads to the radical transformation of many more lives. In fact, technically speaking, if you really want, and I know this, you can poke holes for this, but I'm going to say it anyway. Jesus, with his miraculous act of telling her about her past and present, resulted in the changed life of one person. She goes into town It's like, come and see this guy who told me everything I ever did. And a multitude of people go and get saved. Simple conversations. Simple invitations. Nothing flashy. Can result in radical transformation. And there's nothing that that woman has that you don't have. There's nothing that that woman has that I don't have. There's no tool she used that you don't have in your toolbox. And the way God worked through her, he also works through people like you and me. But here's the thing, and this is the final point. Point number four, you need to make these conversations and invitations a top priority, or listen to me, you'll never do it. You'll never do it. If you're not consciously thinking, this is why I'm here. 
He's like, well, no, I'm, I'm an accountant. I, that's why I'm here. No. Your account, the fact that you're an accountant is a front for why you're really there. God has you there. Yeah, great. You're an accountant. You pass your CPA exam. That's really hard. More people pass the bar the first time out than the CPA exam. Fun fact. And so, you, take my sister's an accountant. So, you, 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 you're there as an accountant, but you're really there for Christ. Like, that's what got you in. That's why you're in there and I'm not in there. And you can reach people who also pass that test. And you can reach people who also work there because I can't reach them because I'm not there because I'm not taking the test. And so, since you took the test and you passed the test and that's your job, God has you there so that you can engage in conversations so that God might radically transform people's lives. You say, am I supposed to preach to them? No. Ask them for water. Start there. Start with having conversations with people that you never know God might use and show an opportunity for you to pivot towards offering something else, towards talking about the things of eternity, the things of Christ, or for you just to offer an invitation. You should probably come to my church. I think you'd like it. I had a friend one time who was like, he was so scared to say that to somebody, didn't know if they would take it. He was waiting for the right moment, and he was, he, he, I was like, why don't you just invite, like just in, I don't know, I really want him just praying he asks. Like, he's not going to ask, bro. He's not going to ask. Like, hey, I was always wondering what your church is like. Like, is it really cool? He's not going to ask. He doesn't care. Just go and ask. Just, just invite him to church. What should I say? You should say you should try my church. I don't know how he's going to act. I was like, just do it. Just do it. Like, all right, fine. And so he went, goes to work, and he's like, hey, you should try my church. I think you'd like it. That was the big spiritual line. <laughs> he said, the guy was like this. He goes, all right, what time's the service? My friend almost fell over. He was like, yeah, like, I'll, sure, I'm not busy. I'll, I'll try. I'm not against it. I'm not saying it's always that easy, but sometimes it's not much harder just to engage people who might, you know, maybe, maybe you should try coming to church with me. Maybe you want, might want to try my community group or having a hangout or whatever. Here's how it typically rolls, but I'll be there. You might enjoy it. Or you don't need church and you don't need community group. You could just say, do you want to, you want to hang out? Hey, let's grab a cup of coffee after work. Hey, let's do this. You want to grab lunch? You want to do this? Conversations about normal things. It's not, would you like to grab coffee so that I can talk to you about where you'll go if you die by choking on it? Don't, just be normal, bro. Just be normal. Like, you don't have to, it's not, I gotta seal the deal now. No, you don't. You don't. God will seal the deal whenever he wants to seal the deal. But he can use people like you and like me by doing normal, everyday conversational things. Look at John 4, verses 31 and following as we close. This is Jesus' plea to the disciples. They come back, kind of jumped around a little, but get the picture. They had just come back. They've got food, right? They've got grocery bags or something. They're like, I already hit the road. Verse 31, meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. You got to eat. We're going to get back on the road. You gotta, you're, you're, you're famished. You got to eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So I was the disciples, like, well, that could have saved us a trip. <laughs> Nobody likes that guy. It's like, oh, I've had a, I have a stash over here. <laughs> I have food to eat that you do not know about. They're like, thanks a lot. So the disciples, verse 33, they're confused. The disciples said to one another, has somebody, did you, somebody else, give him something to eat? That lady maybe gave him something to eat? Jesus said to them, this is, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months and then comes the harvest? Meaning, do you, are you not planning ahead and reverse engineering and realizing what do I need to do to get there? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. He's like, look, there's people. Look, there's souls. Look, there's hearts and minds. Look. The fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. Like that woman, she's already working for the kingdom. For here the saying holds true. One sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. They're thoroughly confused. You don't have to be. Others have reaped, others have sown, others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. You never know what part you're playing in somebody's spiritual journey that will hopefully end with salvation. You never know. You might just be the one person, like I used to work with a Christian one time, and she was pretty nice. But then it's like months or years later where God actually 
seals the deal. But you're just a step, just a, just a, a, a just really like a cog in the assembly line, just a one little person who's going to do one little work that God's going to use in this person's life. But you've got to be willing to do it and you've got to prioritize it or it'll never happen. You'll just live life. You'll just go to work. You'll just go to school. You'll just go to the store. You won't engage people. It takes effort. It's, it's not efficient. It doesn't save time. Sometimes it can be painful. Jesus was getting railed at by this woman. It was not like she was so happy to see him. But you've got to commit to it. And I want to encourage you. What about you? Will you pray that God makes you aware? Pick a number of opportunities and pick a time period. Lord, I pray that you would help me become aware of five opportunities this week or five opportunities this month. Show me things I would not otherwise see in and of myself as I'm just going about my day, as I'm grabbing my cup of coffee, as I'm going to work, as I'm interacting with other students, as I'm just living life, as I'm talking to my neighbor. Show me these opportunities that I can take a conversation from, hey, can you give me a drink of water? So you really should come and see what Jesus can do for your life because he can change it and he can radically save you. I want to encourage you to think through that. Pray that God would make you aware of a certain, Lord, would you show me four opportunities by the end of this month? Lord, would you show me an opportunity a day? Maybe it's a specific place. Lord, would you show me a specific opportunity at the gym? Or would you show me a specific opportunity at, with my neighbors? I don't know. I quite frankly don't care. I just want you to commit to looking for these opportunities because God can use simple, ordinary conversations, simple invitations. You should probably come and do such and such. Simple things to cause radical transformation in the lives of people for their good and for his glory. Lord, we are so grateful that you have radically transformed we who know you and love you Lord, that you have in some way, shape, or form looked at those of us who love you and believe in you and in some way said the same thing you've said to the woman at the well, I who speak to you am he. We have come to know that you are the Messiah. And so before we say anything, we just want to thank you for your generous, gracious gift of salvation. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for and thank you for using us and, and, and working through us, giving us the benefit of being able to do kingdom work when, quite frankly, you could do it a lot better without us. But yet we get to see lives changed. We get to have conversations with people. We get to invite people and watch you do a great work. We pray that you would make us aware. Speak to each and every one of us. We all have this church in common, and then we have very little in common for the next six days. We go to different places and do different things. And so each and every one of us needs individual application that I could never provide, that you could so easily provide. Would you do that, oh God, for your glory? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.